3: I'm Kavi. Joining me today are two special guests, and one of them I think everyone knows very well, Dr. Ryan Marino. Ryan, how are you?
2: I am great. I'm happy to be here.
3: Thank you for stepping in for Lizzie. She's out. Um, and joining us is Dr. Mark Lewis. Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us as well.
1: Oh my goodness, this is such a pleasure. I've listened to your pod for such a long time, and to be a guest is a, is really a privilege.
3: It's it's really nice having you on. I've been wanting to do this for a while, but first this first question, Ryan, you're we're friends, right? Oh yeah. I mean, not just like Twitter colleagues and show friends, but like we're like friends, right? I think, right? Yeah. Okay. So be honest, are my introductions annoying?
2: No, the introductions. I mean, make this show. Thank you. So all you need is a, a button to press for like fart sounds. Bow,
1: bow, bow, bow.
2: Yeah, we we got a little morning zoo vibe.
3: Someone did, someone did tell us that they're like, "Hey, it's a great show, but you could lose the morning zoo vibe."
1: <laughs> I don't know. I I don't think there's any recording that's not improved by a reggaeton horn. It's uh, <laughs> my feeling. So
3: that's right. Okay. Um, before we get to Mark's story, that's you know, that's the major thing we want to sort of accomplish today. I got a lot uh I want to cover in regards to Mark's story. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit to to Ryan. Um, Now, Ryan, you have done such an amazing job of talking about fentanyl drug myths, talking about myths in general regarding drug abuse and drug users. You have been a real shining light and example online, I think, in regards to reminding doctors and not just doctors, but everyone that... Drug users are human beings. They're normal people, just like you, me, whoever. And they just happen to have this one medical issue that might need to be addressed. And one thing that I, that you've done a really good job of is battling myths about drug users themselves. And And I have to say, I think about why we have these stereotypes or misconceptions about drug users. And I I have to assume a lot of it comes from Hollywood. I mean, let me ask you one. Do you agree with that? If not, where do you think these stereotypes come from? And, and uh, let let me start with that. Do you, do you think that's true? Do you think Hollywood is, is a part of this or am I missing the boat here?
2: Yeah. At the very least, Hollywood is perpetuating these stereotypes. I mean, it's very hard for me to name any, any accurate, honest, or good portrayals of kind of substance use. In, in like mainstream Hollywood movies, TV shows, all of that stuff. What's like the, the worst? Can you think of like uh, a movie
3: that that stands out particularly or something recent that in particular throws you when it comes to this?
2: Uh, well, so I mean, the classic example is Requiem for a Dream, which is a great movie, but totally misrepresents almost everything about the substances they try to bring into that movie. Um, and then, I mean, more recently Four good days is, is out right now and generating Oscar buzz or, or whatever, but, uh, looks atrocious. Which one's yeah. that it's the one with, uh, Glenn Close and Mila Kunis, where uh-huh. if, she, if she can just keep herself from doing drugs for four days, she'll be able to get the miracle cure for her addiction, Vivitrol, which is in medicine that doesn't have a good evidence base for its use. Oh, they
3: went with a real medicine, huh? They didn't like make up one.
2: No, yeah. They went with a real medicine, but it seems almost like a commercial for the medicine rather than an honest portrayal. Yeah, what about it seems off? Well, Vivitrol itself (laughs) doesn't have great evidence. So using it as a medicine for people who use opioids like heroin, um, it, it should not be like a first line thing, first of all. Um, and and certainly there's other things we can do. People don't have to sit and suffer for four days. And, I mean, I think everything I saw from that movie, there's been a lot of press for... Mila Kunis is the one who's addicted to heroin, and she confused heroin and meth in some of the press. She said it was really funny. She had to wear these bad teeth, and she thought that was a great time. I don't... It's just a lot lot of ugly stereotypes, pun intended, because, yeah, they tried to make her look really ugly.
3: Right. She had, like, the skin lesions, right? In the picture, in the...
2: Yeah. And that's kind of classic Hollywood is you aren't someone who has drug problems if you don't look terrible on the outside. And I mean, the thing that people should know is that people who use drugs usually don't look any different than you or me because they're they're not really that different from you or me.
3: And no, it sounds like there's no movies. I was going to ask you to point to a movie that might have gotten it right, but it sounds like you can't think of one either.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some out there, but most recently like four good days is in theaters or streaming right now, whatever situation we're in because of COVID, there was a big documentary on HBO about the opioid epidemic and the Sacklers, and they did a really good job investigating stuff, talking about kind of the pharmaceutical industry and the problems there, but then they really missed the mark by just pinning everything on like pharma corruption um, and I mean, it, it's an interesting documentary, but I think mo- for most people, they're just going to take away kind of the wrong points from it. And yeah. we're not really making any progress on these issues is what it seems like.
3: What What do you mean by that? What What wrong points will they take from that? Because I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know.
2: Well, so the the pharmaceutical problem and prescription opioids definitely is is a problem that, that needs to be discussed. And I think that people who knowingly did kind of bad things to profit off of human human suffering, misery, um, and people with medical conditions and people with pain definitely should face consequences for those things. But addiction, opioid use, all of these topics are, are not related to kind of pharmaceutical executives. They're not the ones driving the boat on the problem in the United States. And like the Sackler company in particular, which is the subject of that documentary, um, it is not, not producing these opioids. Our prescriptions are down to kind of near near pre uh, problematic rates mm-hmm. uh, and we're still seeing record opioid overdose deaths in 2020 the latest numbers are are very disturbing so it's not just a prescription issue you can't just blame it on pharmaceutical companies I mean we've got problems at every every level here from from the top down yeah really really kind of federal policies are it would be great to see a documentary about how the federal government, created and maintained this drug problem
3: Mm -hmm. which is a much more difficult i'm sure (laughs) documentary to make (laughs) than talking about one family that we can all hate um (laughs) i got you okay i got you all right um okay so mark let's 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 move on to you i gotta talk to you i got a lot of questions for you you know i'm very glad you came on i'm um been wanting to hear your story since i first started following you on twitter Uh, i think Mm -hmm. you're a really fun person to follow and uh We'll, we'll get to those plugs at the end. I want people to follow you, but let me just make sure I have this right. You yeah. did med school and residency at Baylor in Texas, Great. correct? And you did fellowship at Mayo, correct? And right. you, your specialty is GI oncology, correct? That's absolutely correct, yeah. First, first question for you. It, so there's oncology, which is a special training, um, yeah. but then to become a GI oncologist, is that another level of training or is it just what you've specialized in after fellowship?
1: It's really the latter, and so my first job out of fellowship. So I should point out, I married a Texan. So my wife's a pediatrician; she's a native Texan. So we went up to Minnesota for my fellowship, and after three winters, she said, "This is ridiculous. Um, I need to thaw out. We're going back to Texas," which completely reasonable. Um, so I, my first job out of fellowship was um, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, and what I'm getting at with with my answer is there's such breadth and depth now in oncology that I really don't think there's any one cancer physician. And I know some brilliant ones. I don't know if there's anybody that can quote, know it all. And so at Anderson, I had this dual appointment um, right out of the gates in both general oncology where I was expected to see and and basically know how to manage everything, but also GI where we're getting extremely deep, you know, later lines of therapy, cutting edge research. And I realized at least for me, it was an impossible balancing act to do both. And so I had to Mm -hmm. kind of pick what I was most interested in. And G.I. oncology, as we can also discuss, is something that's deeply touched my family. And so sort of thinking with my head and feeling with my heart, I felt drawn to do that. And now my position for the last five years, that's what I've done exclusively. And in fact, just this weekend while we're recording this podcast, you know, the biggest oncology conference of the year is happening. And again, you can lose yourself in, you know, presentation after presentation just in G.I. oncology and even then in sort of subsections of that, whether you're talking about the colon or the upper GI tract. So Mm -hmm. it is so um, uh, sub-specialized now that most oncologists in practice, I take my hat off to them because they're having to see everything. Uh, There's very few of us, actually, I think are given the privilege to dive this deep into whatever area most interests us.
3: Well, you you mentioned it. And uh, before we get into your story, I think we have to start with your father's. Yeah. Can, Can you tell us a little bit about him?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's funny. There's a, there's a there's a tiny thread here um, between your first conversation with Ryan and, and my my family story, in, um that one of the movie portrayals of drug use that's I think pretty famous is Train Spotting. Mm-hmm. And I grew up as a wee boy in Edinburgh in the nineteen eighties, and you know I was the very sheltered children of a, a pastor uh, and a teacher. And your so accent up, is
3: coming out right now. Hold on. I'm what's going it out on? For
1: you on purpose. You know, okay. like I'm trying to flip the switch. You know. <laughs> Uh, and again, all, all those years in Texas didn't help, but kind of diluted it. You know, I, I had patients ask, you know, you're, you're not from around here, are you? So I got I got rid of the accent pretty fast. But it, I can bring it back on on cue. So um, that's so amazing.
3: It, that's fucking yeah. amazing code switching, man. You don't have to. You could be yourself with us, dude. You don't have to put on an American accent. We don't care. <laughs> well,
1: I have. I certainly uh, don't have a, a face for video, but I might. Ha- I might have an accent for radio and podcasting. So is pretty. Go. It's pretty um, good. It's pretty good. So so yes, yeah, so I grew up there, and um, and again had had no clue that there was a, a heroin problem in Edinburgh at the time. Um, but in 1987, my father, who was a professor of theology at the University of Edinburgh, got this proposal to come over to Texas and be a teacher at a seminary there for five years. And so we thought, okay, well, my parents were very worldly and, and well-traveled and open-minded, and they thought, well, it actually might be good for Mark to see another culture. And so we moved. And you guys may know this, but even long, long before COVID, one of the sort of protocols for immigration to the States is you have to get a chest x-ray to Hmm. exclude tuberculosis. Hmm. And um, it's funny, one of the things you you learn as an oncologist is how to break bad news. Um, There's no perfect way of doing it. I'll tell you how you don't do it. Um, You don't don't want to be a a government official who calls up um, a person who's moving countries and says, well... Uh, there's good news. Uh, your x-ray doesn't show TB, but there's bad news. Your x-ray is completely whited out on one side and you should probably get that seen too. And then oh hang up on the phone. So as oh, soon as we landed in the States, we had to engage a, a, a healthcare system that was completely novel. And to be very honest, sort of stupefying to us. Like you know, we were used to yeah. the national health system, which has many, many downfalls. Uh, but one of its advantages, as you're well aware, is you don't have to pay for for care. Yeah. And so my poor father within a matter of weeks was, scrambling and, and putting charges on credit cards. And he had a, a pneumonectomy um, uh, to you know, try to remove this tumor that was pacifying his right lung. And that was unsuccessful. So then he needed radiation and that didn't work. And then he needed chemo. So all the kind of big three modalities in, in oncology, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, he had in relatively quick succession. Um, and I, I know this sounds like a really sad story. And it, it does end with my, my father passing away when, when he was 49 and I was 14. Um, But the intervening years there where he was getting treatment in America were really eye opening. Um, He actually benefited from some really remarkable and and timely advances in the field. And I guess if I have one message to convey about oncology is, you know, even within sort of the factions of medicine, it's it's very easy to say, oh, you guys are all doom and gloom. Um, Most of us that practice would actually tell you it's never been more hopeful. And the best example I can give is in 1991, my dad was in the ICU. He had absolutely no white blood cells, so a granulocytosis. It looked like he was going to die of neutropenic sepsis. And his oncologist came in, and I still remember this, even as a child, came in, and he's had this new drug, Neupogen. It had literally just been approved that week by the FDA. And he said, I think this will bring your you know, white blood cells back. And it was like magic. I had never seen anything like it. It was like he was casting a spell. And sure enough, my dad's White cells came back, and he lived another three years after that. So we're, we're not able to make people immortal, but we mm-hmm. are able to hopefully sustain their lives, um, give them more meaningful years, and and preserve quality of life. So that was my entree into, into oncology. And again, I was 14 years old. And my father passed. That um, sort of merged perfectly, if you will, with my adolescent angst. Um, I felt very angry uh, about his loss. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm going to channel this rage, if you will, which, of course, was, you know, somewhat immature and, 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 and poorly directed, you know, into um, going after cancer. I sort of viewed it as this this enemy, this um, abstract rival. And I, lo- uh,
3: I love that your rebellion was to become a super well-respected and well-studied physician
1: <laughs> <laughs> on, on the one hand i was like you know listening to nirvana and grunge and getting very very upset and then the other hand i was like reading encyclopedias on my spare time so yeah i now that you said that it's kind of a funny convergence of um of interest but um the, the other part of the story i think is really um important to tell is you know there's been a lot of talk recently about hierarchies in medicine and you know those perpetuating power imbalances and, and exploitation the one thing about medicine i actually think is really beautiful is I think we're one of the only fields that kind of carry the vestige of the medieval guilds where you would do an apprenticeship and you would learn your craft from some master. And then hopefully you would get to pass that on to the next generation. And my point there is, um, even before medical school, long before medical school, um, my dad's oncologist let me work in his clinic. So my dad passed away when I was a freshman in high school. I was looking for a summer job. He said, well, why don't you come work for me? And I, I was like, I don't know what I can offer you. Um, and he just started me very, very entry-level. I mean, I basically did a medical assistant certification. I learned how to do vital signs, put people in rooms, you know, make sure they were comfortable with guns and blankets. And from there, I kind of worked my way up. I did x-ray tech for a while. Uh, but the most important thing I did was I shadowed this guy. And this was still in the era of the paper chart. And he would do something really um, amazing, which is he would write down in the margins these little personal details about the patient. So. You know, they might have a grandchild graduating, or they might be particularly interested in, you know, sports team. Um, and he would always manage in these visits to kind of bring that up. Um, and I, I know these days, you know, our, our time with our patients is essentially monetized. Um, but he was able to sort of weave in these personal interactions that made me see oncology as a, a real opportunity to establish long-term relationships with your patients, I mean, I'm I'm in contact with this guy even now, and um, and of course we had this semi-professional relationship, but he really never forgot my dad, and um, yeah, it's been very uh, meaningful to me as a model for how you can you know, maintain professional boundaries that really take care of your patients as people. Yeah, and that's what that's what drew me into the field. So once my uh, once my anger sort of simmered down. Um, and I had a slightly more mature outlook on things I thought well boy this is really a way you can foster relationships um, that are caring in the best sense of the word um, and still be you know engaged intellectually in some pretty amazing science so that's still what sustains me uh, in oncology it is a difficult field in the sense that we lose far too many people and often people who you've grown close to Um, but as I mentioned earlier it is getting better and uh, even with my dad I, I have to sort of look back with some sort of wistful perspective that there are treatments now that he would have benefited from, um, that would have helped him live longer and better. And, but, you know, you can't change the past. You can only learn from it.
2: That story is so amazing because so many people get into medicine for kind of these personal reasons and, and that, but like you, you have so many more personal reasons and the field of oncology, I feel is just so, it's not that other specialties or other doctors aren't in connection with their patient, but on such a dynamic field. And like you said, I mean, the, the expectation, the status quo is that patients aren't surviving. Right. Um, and so there's, I feel like it, it just kind of makes it a little more meaningful and I have so much respect for oncologists because the, like everything's yeah. changing every day. And <laughs> I mean, like you said, cancer is not one thing. Cancer is a million different things. And so I can diagnose someone with cancer, but I have no way of treating their cancer. I have no way of knowing like what the best long-term thing is. And for the doctors who are like doing this, like you every day, changing, changing their practice, trying new things. It really is remarkable.
1: Well, thank you, ron I'll say two things there. Number one is, you know, I'd already emotionally committed to oncology, of course, but then I got to medical school and as you guys are well aware, one of the sort of I think really nice features of the med school curriculum is it forces you to be exposed to everything. Um, And to really, you know, sort of sample the full palette and make sure that you're committing to something that's truly going to fit and suit you. And they told us very early on, we had this lecture about um, sort of the touchy feely aspects of various specialties. And they said, short of psychiatry, oncology will allow you to grow the closest to your patients. And, And that was enormously appealing to me and kind of resonated with what I already felt. And secondly, to your point about the constantly shifting sands of oncology, because the status quo has been and frankly is dismal for so many of these diseases, um, I think that's why we embrace um, dynamism. And I've often said, you know, I, I got out of fellowship a decade ago, if I practiced now, as I was trained to then, it would literally be malpractice. And mm-hmm. so you're, you're pretty much signing yourself up for, and we all are, um, for lifelong learning. Um, and, and the
3: names of the stuff you have the medications you need to memorize every year is mind-boggling man
1: I that's our, that's our job security man. that's our job security the more the more polysyllabic um, and ideally the more consonants like I actually think that the Welsh, and drug names are sort of converging. Um, there, there's, a, there, there's, a GIF I, there's a GIF I really love for oncology drug names, which is this guy vomiting up Scrabble tiles. And, um, uh, it, there is actually a, a science the nomenclature, but you're right. You look at some of these names and, and now um, the FDA for biosimilar drugs, this is true. The suffix yeah. is four letters chosen at random. So they're not even pronounceable. Um, it's really, it's absolutely unbelievable. And I, and I have patients who come to me and, and they're just, among the other things that they're boggled by is how do I even, you know, say the, say the name of the drug that I'm on? And that's where, of course, brand names the um, company. Yeah.
3: Well, I, I think your story is really interesting for, uh, you know, a couple of reasons. We're going to get to them in one second, but I will say this. What I find in people who I have experienced some sort of trauma, and that's a trauma you experienced yeah. as a kid, yeah. you know? one of two things happens. They either go as far from that as possible or they run right into it. Like I know people who have the same experience as you. And for that reason, it's hard to get them to see a doctor. It's hard to get them involved in medicine. They don't want to be a part of it. And I can understand why after something like that, but you know, you're one of these people who chose to run into it. And that's, I think that's a a really interesting uh, thing about you probably means you're a little crazy and I like it. Um, So, you yourself were diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, it was my first day of oncology fellowship. How do you like that? So shut up. Um, no, it was true. Yeah. So, um, so I, like I mentioned earlier, I was at Mayo Clinic, and I woke up the morning of the first day of my program, and had horrible abdominal pain. And you know, self-diagnosis is a tricky thing. I it was kind of localizing to my right lower quadrant, so I thought, huh, is this is this appendicitis? And so I got checked out and it wasn't appendicitis. It was a high calcium level and I had an ileus. And I've often said before, you know, you can look at the stars and it can look like a thousand points of light, or you can look up and you can see a pattern in in a constellation. And that's what happened for me that day, because my dad had always, 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 even before bone metastasis, also had a high calcium. And, you know, we learn a million bits of trivia in med school. And sometimes we're learning for the test and then we jettison them from our memory banks. But the one thing I remembered was, you know, having hypercalcemia in consecutive generations, that's not normal. And there's only a couple conditions that can give it to you. One is entirely benign, which is familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia. Um, the other is multiple endocrine neoplasia type one. So I mentioned to you earlier, my dad had this weird thoracic malignancy. It was always described to us as lung cancer. Um, and, again, to tie together threads, Ryan, you've done such a beautiful job um, you know, destigmatizing drug use. Um, lung cancer patients still suffer uh, from this notion that they, they somehow deserve their disease. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And, and, and so my dad actually, you know, he was, he was a Protestant theologian. He, he really thought a lot about the implications of the things that he had done and, and had a, a, a healthy or unhealthy sense of guilt. So even though he wasn't a smoker himself, he assumed it was some sort of environmental exposure, secondhand smoke had given him this cancer. And this is one of the other things where I wish I could go back in time and tell him it had absolutely nothing to do um, with any of his choices, uh, his lifestyle, his environment. Um, And and this is what I I think is is true of so many lung cancer patients. So we know now that 15% of patients who develop lung cancer are non-smokers, ergo, not everybody who smokes uh, gets their lung cancer through their tobacco use, and even if they do, that's not that's not a fate that they deserve. And and uh-huh. I, think, I think Ryan, I think where you and I come together here is just this weird sort of conflation of medicine and, and morality, and it's just so it's so unfair um, because you know nicotine in itself is just incredibly addictive and has been marketed as such, regardless. Um, so what I'm getting at is um, my dad's tumor wasn't actually a lung cancer at all. It was a neuroendocrine tumor that arose in his thymus. And that's one of the the hallmarks, if a kind of lesser remembered feature of multiple endocrine neoplasia type one. And so that day I was starting oncology fellowship. I felt horrible. I had a high calcium level. My dad had had high calcium and this weird tumor in his chest and it just kind of all converged for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is MEN1. Now the slightly funny part.
3: And they're like, you pass fellowship. You <laughs> You put
2: this together you're good (laughs) you didn't have you didn't have to do this to pass but
1: yeah I really wanted to impress them with my diagnosis you know you never get a second chance to make a first impression um well I wish that well I I jokingly wish that was the case in fact what happened was I was at Mayo Clinic so famously sort of a uh a home for diagnosticians and I got assigned this internist and his diagnosis was hypochondriasis um and I don't blame him
3: you tell our, uh, first of all, real quick, just because yeah. uh, some of our listeners don't have the medical terminology, yeah, tell, yeah. tell our listeners what that means.
1: Yeah. So, hypochondriasis, you know, being a hypochondriac means you've convinced yourself of having an illness that, in fact, you're not afflicted by. And in the in the era of, you know, Dr. Google, it's actually quite common. Um, and I don't blame the guy, because I was a first-day oncology fellow <laughs> coming to him saying, I have a tumor syndrome. I mean, how unlikely was
0: that? <laughs> that um, is...
1: <laughs> and in and, fact, and uh, one of the, the cool things that happened is I, I wrote up my experience in, um, in an oncology journal and then the New York Times Magazine picked it up as one of their diagnosis columns and they called it, this was so good, they called it nerves or something else. So the notion being, was I just anxious about starting fellowship or did I have something you know, sort of metabolically wrong with me? And I thought that really captured this guy's sort of diagnostic dilemma. Is, is this fellow just reading too much? And, you know, imagining things, or does he have a legitimate problem? And here's where I would tell you guys, you know, there is still, I think, some professional cur- courtesy uh, among docs. And, and frankly, I leveraged that. I said, listen, I, I know this sounds outlandish, and I just kind of came up with this hypothesis today, but I really, really need you to test me for this. And uh, he did with some reluctance. And then, you know, when it came back and I did have ME in one, you know, he was um, quite gracious about it. Um, so again, I was kind of in the right place at the right time. The other thing that's really weird is if I had figured this out even a couple years earlier, and I have to say I was, I was chief resident the year before. So I stood at a whiteboard every day and generated differential diagnoses. And I couldn't see this illness in myself. That's how blinded I was to it. But if I had been smarter and if I had gone and gotten tested, they couldn't actually identify my specific gene until two years before I got suspicious. So if I oh. had gone a couple of years earlier, I'd have been told, no, you're, you know.
3: It would have been done. negative. The testing would have been negative. You would have dropped it. And that exactly. would have been it. You probably never would have revisited it until it was too exactly. late.
1: Yeah. And, and so back to Ryan's point about progress, like we are learning, you know, as we go, frankly, in oncology, I think it's one of the more infantile fields. Um, it's not nearly as well developed as say cardiology. And, and we have to, I think, admit that um, with some intellectual honesty. It, there, again, there's no oncologist that knows everything. Uh, And even if you're omniscient today, your knowledge is going to be out of date very, very quickly.
2: That's amazing. That's such an interesting story because it really highlights kind of the stigma that there is in a lot of different areas. And like you said, I mean, if you'd been two years earlier to arrive at the diagnosis, like you wouldn't have gotten the correct one and gotten the treatment and that's probably something that so many people go through to this day. And certainly there's like plenty, plenty of times where someone will tell you, I know my body, I, I Googled this, all, all of those kind of red flag quotes. Um, but, but it is a real thing. And I think with cancer, maybe even more so than kind of like drug use and addiction, the stigma on people for what, what did you do to cause this cancer? Yes. Why are you not not eating a vegan diet, not taking more supplements, not, not doing this or that? Yeah. Um, and it really, none of that really matters.
1: And, and thank you for saying that, Ryan. So, you know, Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote, you know, The Emperor of All Maladies and Gene, um, in the latter book, he has this formula, which is so brilliant and so simple without being simplistic. And he says that all illness is the sum total of our heredity our environment, our triggers, and chance. And it's that last one that people so drastically underestimate. And you're right. Yeah, Sometimes sure. being very well-meaning, um, other times being somewhat accusatory. When a patient is newly diagnosed with cancer, you know, friends and family kind of come out of the woodwork with recommendations. And often the, the easiest thing to change is is how that patient is, is being nourished by them or how that patient is feeding themselves. I cannot tell you the deluge of... Nutritional recommendations that come after a cancer diagnosis. The problem I have with that is this tacit assumption that the patient was doing something wrong.
3: Wrong beforehand. Uh,
1: beforehand, and, and you know, sugar gets invoked all the time as the, mm-hmm. the fuel for cancer. Um, but that that is something my patients really struggle with. And frankly, if they do make really drastic dietary changes um, right as they're embarking on treatment with me, it can actually make it much more difficult. If I'm honest. For them to tolerate therapy, because to be able to make blood cells and sustain yourself through chemo, you often need, you know, intake of things like meat. Um, So regardless, I I, I completely agree. And I think, again, where our practices are aligning is this strong desire to defend our patients against accusations that they are or have done something wrong.
3: No, yeah. that is, that's a trigger for me too when I see that like with quackery online. Yeah. there We had on the show a long time ago a comedian named Maz Gibrani, and his uh, sister made a documentary about her battle with breast cancer before she succumbed to it. And she, part of it was she was at this spiritual healer in Brazil, I forget who it was. I don't know if it was St. John the Healer or whatever or John the Healer, whatever his name was. But at one point, the guy was kind of just like, you don't believe enough. That's the problem. You just don't believe enough. And I mean, and sometimes it's not quite that obvious. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle, like you're saying, like, you know, if you just didn't eat so many, you know, cupcakes or donuts, this wouldn't have happened. You know what I mean? And, and that's so unfair. It's so unfair to patients.
1: It is so unfair. And you know, the core that strikes with me, honestly, is again, my dad was a theology professor. So when he had cancer, he had students who would come up to him and they would be like, uh, Professor Lewis, I don't know why you're not cured because that's what I've been praying for. And he's like, "Listen, I'm the guy that's trying to teach you this belief system." He's like, "That's not how prayer works." Um, and he actually wrote about that, I think, very movingly and selflessly. He said, "Why should I be spared, you know, just because I've, you know, devoted my life to the you know, study of Christian faith?" He said, "That's not that's not how this operates." And so he had, he had, I think, that depth of insight. But you're right, this notion that willpower is somehow enough. either to avoid cancer in the first place, or to somehow, again, sort of, you know, get you through it. Um, Yes, we all have, you know, some degree of responsibility for our own health, but there's also external factors over which we just have to admit we have no control. And I think that's the lack of uh, power um, over our entire fate is very, very difficult for some people to recognize or admit.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, i in toxicology will see kind of some of the more extremes of this where there's these natural holistic whatever whatever they call themselves healers who offer alternatives to kind of traditional oncologic treatments and i mean the worst one is this quote unquote vitamin b17 which is just cyanide it's not a vitamin um, that that people will still take to this day trying to treat cancer without going through traditional oncology or through conventional oncology. Um, but these beliefs have really permeated kind of all of our culture. If you look at kind of the way even like figures like Marianne Williamson talk, um, like you just need to believe more and your disease will go away. And so, I mean, you and your dad are great voices to kind of stop that because that that's really harmful and it kills people to be honest.
1: Yeah. yeah and, and I see a lot of that online. and I'm sure you guys do too, is that it, it's wonderful. I mean, if you're living a healthy lifestyle and you want to promote that, that's great, but you just have to be honest with yourself and realize that does not protect you from all you know bad things happening. We're all yeah. mortal um, and we're all subject to fate. And I think that's just a really tricky thing to sort of reconcile with the notion, uh, again, that we're all masters of, of what happens to us.
3: Okay, so I uh, I had more questions. I want to move on, but I got to close up this part. Just tell us what happened with your cancer.
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. So um, with my condition, the first thing you have to do usually is control the hypercalcemia. So again, my calcium level was high. So I had osteoporosis at age 30. So uh, calcium had been leaching out of my bones for years. And it's funny, in hindsight, I thought the reason I felt so horrible in my 20s is that I was a resident. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's normal to have this degree yeah. of
3: Exhaustion, abdominal well,
1: pain. It, it, it probably didn't help. <laughs> it didn't help. Yeah, exactly. But it, it turns out it looks a lot like a metabolic syndrome. Um, so, so I had a, I had most of my parathyroids removed. So I had a neck surgery at Mayo Clinic. Actually, I have video of that because uh, my endocrine surgeon said, "Hey, listen, you you have some really big juicy glands." I was like, well, let's, "Let's be careful." Thank you, thank yeah, you. <laughs> my um, eyes
3: are up here. <laughs> hey, my eyes are up here. Okay. <laughs>
1: He was constantly staring at my neckline. It was very <laughs> off um, And he said, I want to make an educational video uh, mm. for the residents <clears throat> and fellows about how to remove this. And I thought, no, oh, that's that's great. Uh, we'll come back to why that's relevant in a second. So I had, I had the parathyroid problem corrected. And once my calcium was normal, I felt fantastic. And then about four days of the surgery, I was like, wow, this this is what normal is supposed yeah. to feel like. It was really amazing. Um, and then... The other problem with my condition, what kills most of us, if I'm honest, is pancreatic tumors. Now, in the era before proton pump inhibition, the main cause of death for my condition was actually stomach ulcers that would either bleed or uh, perforate. But now that we have PPIs, that's actually not the main cause of death. The main cause of death now is tumors that grow in your pancreas and then either secrete uh, too much hormone and or spread to your liver. And most famously, and not necessarily because of a genetic cause, that's what happened to Steve Jobs and Aretha Franklin. So there's no good type of pancreas cancer. This is a little bit different than what most people conceive of as a pancreatic malignancy. So these are pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. So to to your question, I found out that I had these, um, again, at the same age, age 30, and then I had the luxury because they are slower growing. I had the luxury of watching them until surgery was absolutely necessary. And that uh, happened you know, four years ago. Uh, one of the tumors in particular started accelerating and was clearly becoming malignant and had to come out. So I had the Whipple surgery in 2017. And again, because I remembered um, hearing that it would be useful for some surgical trainees to you know, see a video or documentation of a procedure, I um, not just video, but live tweeted that procedure. So. Um, that was an amazing process. <laughs> no, no, that, I stress. I to stress something. I did. I did something very silly. I gave my institution here, Intermountain, control of my Twitter account on that day. So mm-hmm. some of my friends, my non-medical friends, sure. thought I was being awoken from general anesthesia to sort of thumb out what was happening, and then we put back under. It was like no, that's not what's happening. But my, um, you know, my organization here was wonderful. They've got a very savvy media team and they brought in cameras and videos and people that are good at Twitter and they documented the whole thing. Um, and I woke up from um, anesthesia and the whole thing was, was documented. It's actually how my wife got updates on the procedure. So rather than, um, the surgeon having to come back and forth from the yeah. arm, she just followed the whole thing on Twitter, which is just kind of surreal even now. Um, yeah. And that's, I think that's honestly been the best thing I ever did in social media because it's a scary surgery. It's very, very involved. Um, and not easy to recover from, but I can't tell you, I've got a lot of people in my practice who come to me and they could be cured of pancreas cancer. Uh, but they're very, very, um, nervous, understandably about doing this surgery. And I, I I'm firmly in the belief that monsters are less, uh, scary in the lights. They're more scary in the dark. And so if you can shine a light onto something and illuminate it, it usually makes it slightly easier to understand and less off-putting And so that's why I did it. And um, again, I'm relatively healthy four years later. I think that's another thing people need to see. Um, and I've been very demonstrative about it on social media, uh, which for the most part has been a positive thing.
3: And you share it with your patients, it sounds like. It sounds like you're pretty good yeah. with your patients.
1: Well, you know, what's fascinating is I actually hardly ever bring it up um, because we're in the information age and because patients tend to research their doctors, especially maybe their oncologists. Most of them, by the time they come and see me, even for the first consultation, already know this about me. And with very, very rare exceptions, I try to make sure they're the ones that bring it up because I don't want our precious time together to be about me. I want it to be about them. But because I also am in this very niche space with these very rare tumors, what's happened is Google and search engine optimization has brought my name up, I guess, towards the top of these result lists. And so more and more of my patients are coming to me because they think I, air quotes, get it, that I've had the same thing they've had. And so there's this really beautiful feedback loop, if I'm honest, happening in my practice where I'm getting people coming to me who I can actually, you know, authentically relate to their experience. I've not yet required chemo. I've not yet required radiation. I'm very, very clear about that with my patients because they say, oh, you're so empathetic. I'm like, well, hold on a second. I actually don't know anything personally about going through these things I might recommend for you. Um, I do understand... The implications of a cancer diagnosis. I understand the implications of a genetic condition, and I get you know facing down a life um, changing, but ultimately life-saving surgery.
3: That's really that's really amazing that you have that opportunity to connect with patients on that level, and you choose yeah. to. Yeah. I could see how on some level you may not want to, um, and and you probably don't share everything with them, um, just because there still has to be some semblance of a doctor patient relationship um,
1: yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. um but i could see that really if i were a patient that's kind of thing i i think would help me i think it. Would oh, be well
1: thank you for saying that again one thing i try not to do is i don't want it to come off as condescension and that, oh i can totally get what you're going through because again most of what i'm actually prescribing i'm not receiving right um my wife is a pediatrician they did something really cool in her program where when she was a resident they made them taste all the antibiotics uh, which i thought was genius. yes like, oh i did that did, did you do that all well, right because <laughs> because then you understand oh yeah the struggle the parent has getting their kid to choke down clindamycin you know four times a day yeah um or metronidazole probably,
2: is the uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. was my least favorite <laughs> well,
3: i'm i'm one of the few gastroenterologists i know that has tried to drink movie prep colite all that stuff it's it's awful It's really bad. It's it's, it's really important to know those things when you can.
1: That's very very Barry Marshall of you. I mean, he got, uh, you know, Nobel for H. pylori. I think we should be looking (laughs) for you. Um, but, but, But no, the reason I bring that up is I don't know any oncologist, of course, who has, you know, voluntarily exposed themselves to a chemo agent. And so we routinely prescribe things that, yes, we've read about the toxicity profile, but in truth, in our embodied experience, we don't know what it's like. Um, and, and there are oncologists out there who have gone you know, beyond my experience and had you know, systemic treatment. And one other really interesting thing about fellowship was because I spent my ent- entire training you know, with this diagnosis and being kind of overt about it, a lot of my faculty would sort of come up to me and you know, take me aside and say, hey, listen, I've had cancer myself. Uh, and they would you know, confide in me their experience. And so there, there are really amazing doctors out there who without being nearly as exhibitionist as me, Um, a lot of their own experience, their own health to impact the way they take care of patients. I think it's just a really powerful way of sort of giving back what you've learned.
2: Well, I mean, I think that lived experience is so necessary for a lot of what we do. Um, And I mean, it's hard as doctors a lot of times to tell people to do something or like what steps are if, if you have no idea what that actually means. Yes. And I mean especially in, in kind of like addiction and other aspects, I mean, any, any lived experience really goes a long way with people. So I can see why oncology, especially where this is kind of a very, very vague area for patients, there's just, it's all question marks. I think like, am, am I gonna live? Am I gonna die? What does the treatment mean? Um, that that can't, can't be overstated the value of what that provides.
3: One more question for you, because you're a father, right? Yeah.
2: Uh, were you
3: a father when you were diagnosed? I know you're a father now. I see the Nerf guns in the background of the Zoom picture there. So <laughs> yeah, we I, should, I, I recognize We should make this. note of
2: the fact that there's a whole wall of Nerf guns that make some sort of like Texas senator proud. <laughs> and laser um, guns. I see laser guns. I see Nerf guns. That's
3: an impressive a, wall of
2: kid deduction. Du- a Dr. Fauci cutout as well. Yeah. So, I,
1: very, very briefly for your audience, paint the visual that we are in the process of converting my son's old bedroom into a office. Uh, hence a rather bizarre uh, combination of Nerf guns and then a Dr. Fauci cutout that my wife bought. Um, so it's a, a very interesting tableau. Um, so yeah, that actually is a perfect segue. I am a parent and to your question, which is extremely insightful, um, I learned I had a genetic condition which has an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. So meaning that there's a 50-50 chance any one of my kids is gonna receive this mutation from me, right? So when I found out I had this, um, my daughter had already been born, but my wife and I really wanted to have more kids. And at the time it was very, very much um, in its nascency, but there was this technology called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD for short, and it essentially, is in vitro fertilization with the added twist, an important added twist, that you're selecting out embryos that don't carry your mutation. Um, and for some parents, and for some really, really serious genetic conditions, uh, this is a very appealing technology. Um, its critics, and there are critics, call it, you know, g- eugenics. Right? It, it is quite literally. Ensuring the fitness of the next generation by eliminating the unfit embryo, and for a variety of reasons, we opted not to do this. Uh, on an existential level, um, if this technology had existed for my parents and they had chosen to use it, I wouldn't be here, which yeah. is a really bizarre sort of you know Mindfuck. You just say mindfuck. <laughs> exactly, exactly to get into. Um, so again, my wife and I decided to. Um, conceive our our son naturally and he has he has my gene uh, mutation and I don't regret that one bit Um, one of the things about my syndrome is most of us actually do survive uh, to childbearing age and and that's actually one of the reasons the gene has persisted it it doesn't carry such horrific lethality at least not usually that it would kill you in your first decades of life Um, and so while the gene has been perpetuated in my family uh, on a very deep level, my son's illness, you know, drives me to make care of this condition better. Uh, Even more so, I think, than myself. So he got to witness, you know, the whole Whipple debacle. Um, At the time I had my surgery, he would have been six. So he called it my tummy troubles, which was a little bit of an underestimation of what was going on. But nonetheless, I've told him many times, um, I hope that he doesn't have to go through what I've been through or, you know, our forefathers went through And again, he's actually armed with the knowledge that no one else has had. You know, I figured it out when I was 30. Um, He knows about it very, very early on before he's even symptomatic. And so especially with his mother as a pediatrician, he is in fantastic hands. Um, And I actually, um, I hate the phrase new normal, but but I I will say I, I do think his awareness of this is just part of his growing up now. Uh, and in a manner that I don't think has pathologized him, I think he looks on it as, you know, as part of who he is. He, he actually quite likes going in the MRI machine. They give him a, a laughing gas that apparently tastes like bubble gum. So, <laughs> so he looks forward to his uh, to his scans. Uh, and again, growing up in our household with two doctors as parents, um, you know, I think it will be very well taken care of.
3: That's, that, it's, that's great to hear. And it sounds like you guys are doing this in like the healthiest most open way that uh, we could ever hope for. It's heavy though, man. I mean, like as a parent, you always want the best for your kids. You're always worried about your kids, even if there isn't this underlying thing to worry about.
1: Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I there's obviously a part of me that wishes he didn't have the mutation, but I also, I guess what I'm getting at is it's not the end of the world um, that he has it. And I think it's part of his identity now, just like it's part of mine. Like I, it's weird. I, I cannot imagine myself, without this condition it's just literally woven into me yeah and i think at some point he'll come to view it the same
2: wow and yeah i mean exactly what you said about if this technology existed and your parents had used it you wouldn't be here and i mean for all the parents out there who are like i don't want my kids to go through any suffering you said it's part of your identity and without you here to tell us about it i mean the world would be a worse place so oh
1: ryan that's very very kind of you thank you and again you know my my dad and my paternal grandfather and that's as far back as i can see it you know they lived very rich lives lives that were cut short unfortunately um but you know they contributed so much my paternal grandfather for instance was key in bringing peace to northern ireland in the 1960s i mean they did great things and my dad taught you know loads and loads of students and his book lives on, and syllabi at seminaries, and so thank you for saying that. I, my my father said something very wise: is that we're not guaranteed three score years and ten, um, which is you know the, from the Psalms in the Bible, the estimate of how long we're going to live. Um, and so I see this with my patients too, um, and obviously it's a very sunny view of mortality. But the notion that um, you know not all of us are going to get to live to the average life expectancy, you know, by by definition. You know, slightly less than half of us are not going to make it there. Um, um, It's what we do with our time. And uh, one of the things my patients work on a lot, quite consciously, is legacy building. So even though they know they have, you know, very serious illnesses and often much more serious and grave than mine, um, they really, once they know uh, that they have cancer, um, many of them make a concerted effort to say, okay, um, how am I going to leave my mark? And most of the time, that involves very meaningful Uh, interactions with family. But I think it can also mean finding, you know, true reward, and lasting impact in your work. And I think in medicine, I think we're very privileged to know that what we do, largely does influence other people's lives, and and hopefully for the better.
3: Wow, you well, I think that's a good place to end it, because that's just fucking beautiful. You both are incredibly inspiring. um, And I'm glad you both are here the world is a better place for both you guys. I agree with you, Ryan, but it also applies to you too. So uh, thank you both so much for coming on. This is a real pleasure. Let's let's get some plugs in. Ryan, let's start with you. Where can people find you?
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ryan Marino, one word.
3: Absolutely, one of the people you must follow. If, if you're not on Twitter and you don't wanna be on Twitter, just Google him every now and then, his tweets will show up, it's worth it. And, and Mark, uh, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, so Ryan and I share uh, a creative streak when it comes to our Twitter handles. I'm at Mark Lewis, M-D, MarkLewisMD, M.D.
3: And where, where's your practice?
1: So I work, I'm the director of gastrointestinal oncology at Intermountain Healthcare, which is based in Salt Lake City, Utah, but we actually cover about six states in the Mountain wow. West. Uh, and actually, normally uh, I'm talking to some of my patients in rural frontier populations, just like I'm talking to you guys now. So it's a very uh, a cool thing uh, to practice modern medicine.
3: It was a blast talking to you both. What a great what a great conversation, and we really appreciate your input uh, and insight. Um, you have an insight that very few people have being a doctor a son a father and dealing with all this that you've dealt with so thank you for sharing it with us and uh, thank you again to everyone for listening thank you to nadim for help with production if you haven't follow us at twitter rate and review us on itunes if you haven't it's worth it uh thank you stay tuned and we'll see lizzie on the next episode hopefully or ryan will be here again take care i'm coming for you
2: lizzie